Hello, and welcome to another chapter of Turn the Page, the official podcast of Syosset Public Library. I'm Jen, your co-host for today, and I'm here with the author of an absolutely stunning, amazing new horror novel. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Sure. Um, my name is Erica T. Worth, and I guess in short, um, it's a literary horror, an indigenous literary horror novel. And in long, it's um, still fairly short, though. <laughs> it's about Carrie, um, who's an urban native um, from Denver, and she loves horror film and um, and books, and she loves heavy metal, specifically Stephen King and Dave Mustaine. <laughs> and she really despises her mother because <clears throat> she assumes her mother abandoned her when she was two days old. But when her cousin Debbie finds this ancient bracelet of her mother's and the main character Carrie touches it, her mother's ghost starts haunting her. And then this monster invades her dreams and she decides, well, I guess I should find out what happened to my mother after all. So, mm. yeah, this was such an exciting journey to go on with Carrie and you meet so many interesting people along the way and you learn a lot about um Colorado and specifically native Colorado I think um before we get too deep into that I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about um your career in general like other things you may have written um and how you kind of came to this project Sure. And, you know, I forgot to do the holding up of the book thing. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I my career was kind of a funny one. My parents um, came from fairly working class backgrounds. My mom is of um, Apache Chickasaw Cherokee descent. Some of them are from northern Mexico. Some of them are from the southeast. And they're also of some black descent. Um, so you don't want to be in the southeast if you're freed um, and you migrate and both of them migrated into Texas um, for kind of political reasons and created a series of urban Indian communities with other natives, right? This happens in Chicago, LA, Minneapolis um, with different different folks. Um, and so my parents were very were very poor growing up, but um, they're ambitious and you know they eked out a middle class. They went to school to college and they eked out a middle class in, environment for me. But um, for certain reasons, money was still often tight. We, I, I was bused to school in Idaho Springs, which is a rugged little town. And I didn't really know anybody who was a writer growing up. All I knew was that I was super nerdy and a weirdo. And I liked what's now called speculative literature. Um, and I wanted to be a writer and I don't know why, because I didn't know any writers. And <laughs> um, I just read all the time I read. If it didn't involve a ghost, I didn't read it. Um, if it didn't involve an elf or a spaceship. Um, and someone even did try to give me a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. And I was like, where are the dragons? Um, so <laughs> um, I went um, eventually to Fort Lewis College. And then I went to the University of Colorado for my doctorate in creative writing and literature. But that was the time in which they kind of ironed out anything that they considered to be genre, right? There were supposedly two things, literary and genre. And I was kind of a serious person, I realized. And I come from kind of a serious background and I wanted to write serious literature. And so um, I wrote realism um, for a long time. And when it really came down to it, I just missed um, the dragons. I missed more specifically the ghosts, um, the monsters, all that stuff. And I realized that I could marry um, literary with any genre, that literary wasn't a genre, it was a series of conventions. And so um, 
I'm a creative writing, creative writing professor. And I, I've done that for years. That's, that's really ultimately my career. And I've published poetry. I've published nonfiction articles, um, et cetera. But this is my first horror novel and I'm super excited about it. Oh, very cool. That's a really interesting um, path toward this book. And I think you're right that, you know, genre does get sort of a, I don't want to say a bad rep, but sort of like it is often seen as like the lesser of of writing. And that's really unfortunate because I think there is such great storytelling happening in what we call genres. And it's sort of a an unnecessary um, uh, bifurcation that doesn't really need to exist. Um, as I was looking into your career and what you've done, I noticed a really interesting uh, project that I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about. The um, It was called Meow Wolf Denver. And I saw that you have an event there coming up and that you've done some sort of like um, installation type stuff. Could you talk about that a little bit? It was so funny. I talked to my, um, my folks at Flatiron who have published the book and or who are about to publish the book. And they were like, what is this meow wolf that you speak of? Which is hilarious because in the West, people are like, meow wolf, you know? And if you don't know, it's this giant installation art warehouse um, of revolving installations in um, New Mexico, uh, funded by, in part, but a lot, by uh, George R. R. Martin. And it was so popular. Um, you know, you'd go into this building, every single artist had, you know, charge of different spaces. There's sometimes big black and white 50 styles rooms. You open a drawer, a dryer, you go into a, a cone of light and you slide down it into an alien world. Like it's that cool. And the one in Denver, um, my friend, um, gosh, why am I forgetting his name? Lee, um, who's a Pueblo descent. He connected me with those folks because he was connected with them because he's in that area and his family's from that area. And they were going to do something in Denver that was even bigger, right? They're now in Los Angeles and they're going to have two in Texas. And, um, you know, I'm not a visual artist, obviously, but I wanted to do something fun and cool to do with indigenous futurisms, which is uh, kind of a theory put forth by this uh, Anishinaabe scholar named Grace Dillon. So I imagined a room for them and they paired me with the visual artist who like brought it to life where I pulled from all this Native American architecture um, that's contemporary and they uh, painted a mural and it's this cool mural of like, you know, you know, where it's all red and pink, um, where it imagines that at the point of colonization, natives in the Colorado area were offered a chance to go somewhere else to another planet. And some of them said, okay, because they'll, they can go from mother earth to mother Leche. And um, some vegetation on alien worlds, depending on, you know, the sun and the size of the sun and the trajectory of the sun and the distance of the earth, the vegetation is red. So I thought I would do that. And there's this, um, like I said, mural of all the architecture. There's a mural of a train and there's a mural of the three sisters, which is corn, beans and squash, which a lot of native people grew together. And then there's a big tree in the middle, which poor Theron, Theron's very small, <laughs> had to get this big concrete thing together. And in the middle is just this sort of cool red gothy mirror that they made. And it's a video of my cousin who did lose ancestors at Sand Creek. Um, it's a video of my friend, Stephen Graham Jones, who's just, you know, just a wonderfully goofy, such a smart, wonderful indigenous horror writer. And he's like, I'm Stephen Graham Jones. And he's talking about contemporary Denver, America. And then I'm this character named Nightshe who um, is asking you to help save her world by knowing more about indigenous um, history in, in Colorado and the United States. So yeah, it was just, 
it was so much fun. I, I love Meow Wolf. I, I just think they're a really unique institution and they're growing and they're changing and they're becoming genuinely more diverse. They listen. Um, they just did something with Virgil Ortiz, who's a genius. Um, so yeah, yeah. I can't talk enough about them, obviously. <laughs> wow, that is awesome. I'm really glad I asked that because <laughs> it sounds like a really neat project that they're doing and that you've contributed something really awesome to it too. And stuff that, you know, works with some of the same themes that we deal with here. Um, turning to the book now, I was wondering, um, you know, I hate asking authors where they get their ideas because it's a bad question, but I'm more interested in like, was there an inception point for this book? Like, was there an image or a character or an event or something that kind of like sparked the whole thing for you? Like I said, in some ways it was returning to my nerd roots because I, I missed these things and it had been a, a good short story collection, um, then a garbage novel uh, from multiple points of view, which I've yet to master, let me tell you that. <laughs> um, and then it had become, you know, kind of a realism novel. And then I was watching Lovecraft Country and I read Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno um, Garcia and... I just, the, the cogs turned in my head and I'm like, this, this is who I am. This is, I'm a horror writer. It marries all the things I like about realism and gritty literature with all the magic stuff that I miss. Um, but what was also boiling in the back of my brain was actually really something that I, it took a while for my sister to say, yeah, I told you that. So my grandmother um, had had an arranged marriage um, when she was in fifth grade like a contemporary Indian arranged marriage. Like it used to be more like, Hey, you're not related to him. Do you like him? No. Okay. We won't arrange that. Or mm, let's, we're kind of like, there are too many people related in this town. Let's, <laughs> let's get some movement here genetically. But then it became my family, like I said, is urban and they've been urban the whole way. And there became a, there was a terror around just losing that many people and losing the culture. So my grandmother who had had an arranged marriage or my grandmother's grandmother who had had an arranged marriage and killed the man still didn't arrange a marriage. That's a whole story um, for her granddaughter who she raised. And he was just awful. Um, and, you know, she left him for his friend actually who wanted to, to help her marry her. Um, and he was like uh, probably of some black descent, probably of some native descent, but as far as we know, white, white passing. So they, he was an alcoholic though. And I, all I knew was that my, my Mimi had committed suicide when I was six, but later when a cop looked at the paperwork, the death certificate and the other paperwork surrounding my grandmother's death, um, he said to my mom, uh, this looks doctored and I don't want to make assumptions here, but your dad kind of was a well-known, well-respected guy. And if, if they wrestled for the gun, he could just say, oh, she committed suicide. And so the difference of opinion in my family about what actually happened has been a real um, soreness subsequently. And she was absolutely the matriarch of my family. And so I had almost, I had forgotten that until my sister reminded me. And yet I hadn't forgotten it because it was in the back of my mind. And I, as I was writing this novel. Mm, wow. That is so much. <laughs> that is, um, an absolutely compelling and tragic story. And I can absolutely see how it influenced a lot of what's going on in this book. Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot here in this book about intergenerational trauma and the way that the the secrets and the deeds of previous generations can still have impact on their offspring and their offspring's offspring. Could you talk a little bit about uh, Carrie and her relationship to her parents um, and, you know, maybe even beyond her parents, like her her wider uh, kin network, let's say, because she has a lot of important connections here. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was on a podcast yesterday called Talking Scared, and it's like my favorite horror podcast. And I was super nervous and terrified um, that Neil is the coolest guy. But he was saying something really interesting. I told him that since the main characters on um, mom was native and had disappeared. She was mad at her for this, or so she thought she disappeared, right? And her dad was this white guy who was just super in love with her, devastated over the whole thing and started drinking and driving, which he didn't do before and ended up with brain damage um, that the main character hated being native. And the journey in the book was, I actually don't hate being native. I try to make it clear, but the problem is like, as Neil kind of finally was like, oh, this is in my head. A lot of people, because of policies of genocide and colonization in this country, and because we have these like tropes like tragic mulatto or, you know, the last Indian, right, or the dying Indian, we imagine that, you know, the journey has to be like coming back to their native roots. In my opinion, Carrie grew up with a very traditional person in, the, in, the, in her community who could be called a curandera or a spirit person or a, um, you know, spiritual advisor. Um, and that's Auntie Squeaker. And so Auntie Squeaker is, is distantly related to her. And like, she's this sort of community figure and she helps people with abortions if they need them with, you know, warts cure if they need them, things like that. And um, so she has a kind of base. What she is, is a Gen Xer who's working class, who has no interest in spirituality. She has the archetypal ugh, of her generation, right? And you can see why, because like, it all seems she's a very pragmatic personality. You know, it's like, thanks. I don't know. I'm probably an atheist. Don't even care. Bye-bye. Um, <laughs> but I think what happens is she realizes that spirituality pertains to her, whether she wants it to or not via her mother's ghost and her mother's um, participation in things like Native American church and, you know, other, you know, spiritual, spiritual things. And um, that it does pertain to her and there's a way to do it that does match her personality that isn't cheesy, that isn't silly. And mm -hmm. so I think that's where she comes to. And it also it helps her reach in and like understand her mother better, this person that she hated and that she could finally love, which is, you know, to, to use a cheesy word healing. Mm. Yeah, I really like how um, Harry's orientation toward um, the spiritual or the supernatural sort of like reverses a very popular horror trope because something that you see in horror a lot is like something has happened to the protagonist and nobody around her believes uh what happened to her but instead you have like everybody around her <laughs> believes that something weird is happening but she doesn't you know and I really I thought that was like a really flip the script in a nice way <laughs> I love that I'm going to use that and I'm going to credit you because what it is, if you've lived on, on the res or in any rural town, it'd be clear, you know, I'm not a member of federally recognized tribe. I'm, I'm of descent and I did not grow up on the reservation. I'm very urban. Um, but yeah, what it is, is yeah, everyone has very invested in spirituality. Absolutely. 100% believe. And it doesn't matter their demographic because 
the white folks I grew up would be like, I saw Satan outside my trailer, you know? And so, you know, that makes, that's, I love that. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, I, another thing that you touched on just now that was um, really touching to me is that, you know, through Carrie's process of sort of getting to know her mother's story again, it touches into this idea that I think all of us go through, you know, regardless of whether something tragic happens to our parents or not. But like we kind of, you know, we get to know our parents twice, like once as children through our sort of rosy colored view of them, not as like human beings, but as just like these figures who take care of you or don't. Um, And as adults, we sort of learn who they really are, like who the human being is um, behind that sort of like maternal figure. Um, And I'm curious about like, how this process, this process of like Carrie getting to know who her mother was plays into, um, how do I put this? Like how you depict trauma and intergenerational trauma and like the role of ghosts, you know, because it occurred to me while I was reading that like most ghosts just want to kind of be heard or seen or understood. And that plays so much into like ideas of how like, trauma works and how telling stories can, you know, play into the process of healing. And I'm just wondering, like, how were all of these ideas like floating into your floating around your head and how they made it onto the page, if that makes any sense at all? (laughs) Yeah, no, I think um, on some level, politically, when it comes to intergenerational trauma, you've got somebody who she's kind of got a double whammy, because obviously, if you're on the res, like it's a rural area, there are very few resources. And people can be ignored and that's not cool. Um, But if you're urban, sometimes you're not even counted. But if you're clearly like not white, you encounter racism. Mm -hmm. So that's what's kind of going on, especially for Carrie's mother. Um, And so her death, as the cop talks about, is essentially ignored Mm -hmm. uh, and not paid attention to. And... um, but in some ways, the business of the mom and the mom, of course, like comes back because she wants Carrie to know her personal history and she wants her to know, you know, her her background. Like you have these visions of Geronimo, right? Um, and so, um, but I think like in some ways, what it is is the pragmatic, I guess trope is the wrong way, tactic, because a lot of the versions of the book were, you know, people talking in a room, well, your mother did this and this and that. And I'm like, this is so boring. And so um, in some ways, having a ghost come back and having the main character be forced into these sort of vision spaces, dreams, vision spaces, it's a way of bringing the past to life without having to deal with the tangle of different points of view and having this boring kind of narrative. So that's really cool too, I think, because when you presenting her history this way, like through these flashes that she gets in these visions, it really allows you to um experience the story like along with Carrie because like you don't have any context that she doesn't have you know like you are learning the same things that she's learning as you go along and I think it's very immersive in that way like you feel very engaged and very invested in her learning about what happened um oh one thing that I really was interested in is that like through the investigation of the mother's disappearance Um, You use that to talk a lot about different um, 
Native movements and different historical events. And you talk uh, in particular about AIM a lot, the American Indian movement, which I had only known about with regards to like the occupation of Alcatraz. But they have this other like very rich, rich history that plays into uh, Cecilia, the mother's story, as well as the you know, the ongoing issue of missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, so I'm wondering, like, how how did all this real life stuff end up shaping um, this very, you know, this is all like very broad historical stuff, but it has real tangible impact on the lives of these characters, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I want to be super clear. My It's my partner who's a thriller writer who's the, um, he's a, has a doctorate in political science. And I am in literature, but um, as someone who's like my 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 family, some of them were like huge Native American church, huge power goers, and then they became like evangelical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have some exposure to these things personally, politically, um, and I and I also did my research because I think most people in Native communities know that, for example, when it comes to Anime Aquash, who was a, a, an activist in AIM, there's a lot of question about what happened to her. And I guess it triggered feelings I had about my grandmother mm. because um, AIM, I, I love the idea of AIM as like a, a strong Native American movement that goes and occupies and um, demands and, you know, makes um, people aware that it's not this abstract idea of Indianness that when we're talking about land back, we're talking about reclamation and we're talking about, you know, very concrete things, spirituality, language, um, things that really matter to us. Um, but I think also, unfortunately, what, why I'm, I'm unclear in the novels, because I think a lot of people are unclear, which, you know, about a lot of things that happen in AIM. For example, there's a big controversy around Leonard Peltier. Did he do it? Did he not? Even in the native community, there's there's this, you know, did he murder this cop or not, right? Or did he murder other people, blah, blah, blah. Anna May Aquash, um, did the cops murder her? She was an activist. Did um, the men in AIM murder her because she was trying to be sort of an equal? Um, did the women murder her because they felt competitive? Because she, Anna, you know, was pretty and had, you know, the attention of, of men. So, I think there's a lot of mystery in that space that I wanted to kind of put in there. And it's every native has some relationship in some ways to aim. Everybody does. So I think it's important to kind of like acknowledge that. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a very, um, it it was like a very interesting way to learn more about the group and about um, the various just things that were going on. um, You know, throughout basically, I guess um, the mid century into today. Um, And I think it speaks to how, um, you know, the inability of some of these individuals to get closure speaks to like wider systemic things. Because a lot of the stuff that you were talking about, like language and spiritual practices were stuff that would have been like specifically um, suppressed through like, you know, re-education movements and all those, like the the terrible schools and all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, and so because these things are being ignored by the system, by the police, by the government, like people are denied their closure, if that makes sense, you know, so you can see how like political uh, events and political happenings can have just this like very real impact on individual lives. Yeah, I think the thing to remember is that um, it wasn't until 1978 that 
spirituality in the United States was made legal again for Native people. Like our spirituality was illegal until 78. I was born to expose myself here in 75. Um, and then you have Canada, the United States and Mexico with very different ways in which they deal with the assimilation of their native populations. The United States is obviously about removal and suppression. And you have the, the boarding schools and some day schools of re-education. Um, and my grandmother went to a day school because she was already assimilated because she was urban, which did mean she got to go home and speak her language with her grandmother because her grandmother spoke five languages. Now her grandmother did try to stop it at one point though. And she do the thing that I saw countless Navajo or Diné people do when I went to school, which is like, they're talking Navajo, Navajo to one another. As soon as the kid comes in, they're speaking English. Um, but um, the thing about it is in, in the United States is that unlike Canada, which has a series of bizarre uh, laws about who can be a status Indian, they call it, um, they did at least track a lot of their urban Indians, although there's anti-Blackness in Canada as well. And so that's a factor. But in the United States, anti-Blackness was much bigger factor. And so if you were an urban native, I think because of anti-Blackness in a complicated way, what they, they, it says on our government's website, like unless people were visibly Black, if they, even if they spoke their language, even if they looked completely native, mark them down as, as white unless they were on the res in order to encourage assimilation. That didn't change until the 60s or 70s. Mm. And so in Mexico, it's a free fall. There is genocide, there's colonization, there's suppression, but they have like a different, I forgot what their expression is, but it means like purify the race, um, which means like, hey, we won't kill all of you, but your end goal is to marry up as white as you can so that if you're black and if, especially if you're indigenous, right, in that country, um, eventually through the generations, you become white. Wow. Right. And so there's just a, there's a lot of differences that I think um, people sometimes exploit because they don't understand or they do understand and they want to like apply this, the standard to that and you can't. So, mm. Gosh, yeah, that's really interesting. And it speaks, I think, to how, you know, race or perhaps ethnicity can be something that's very empowering when it's something that you claim for yourself or that you declare or express on your own and incredibly limiting and damaging when somebody labels you as something or when a government does, you know, um, and there's just so many different identities that are being navigated, um, obviously, in in history and current day, but also in this story, like Carrie Carrie and her circle uh, have a lot of different identities that they sort of have to wield at certain times in order to get certain things done, you know, and I think this book yeah. is very attentive to how identity is something that you can claim or something that can get like foisted on you. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so not to change the topic too much, um, but to talk about another aspect of it. So we've talked a lot about the ways in which this uh, novel is like a love letter to native Colorado, but it's also um, a love letter to like Stephen King's Colorado. And he plays a pretty big role in Carrie's life through the stuff that she reads. And some of the touchstones from his book, books even play a really big role in this story. And I'm wondering if that is something that was, um, uh, that came from perhaps your reading history or your taste in literature over the years and something that became important for that reason? Yeah, you know, um, in some ways, White Horse is an homage to the dying Denver because the White Horse Bar, which is real, 
um, literally just got sold and will probably be paved over. And it's one of the, the Denver Indian institutions. Um, it's like the Denver Indian institution, really. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's Lakeside, which is an ancient rusting um, amusement park that I went to as a kid. And it just is now it's like, I don't know, it's a perfect scene for a horror novel, actually. Um, but yeah, Stephen King, a lot of it was like every kid um, in the 80s and 90s, I read a ton of Stephen King. He was omnipresent. Um, there were, of course, writers like Clive Barker who were, you know, there and existed. But um, King was, you know, it, it, this is not a pejorative thing, but almost like the book club horror, because even though he addressed hard issues and he was visceral and he did sometimes engage body horror or real fear, um, you could really relate to these characters. Um, he's really good at that. He's great, great at complex characterization. He's great at putting people in places of tension. I think people have understandably complained like, oh, I think his native characters aren't so great. I think that even King now would be like, yeah, maybe I could, if I could do it again, you know, um, he seems like a reasonable guy. Um, I just adored him and I still do. And <clears throat> I tried actually going back to our earlier thing. I wanted to write um, my senior thesis on Stephen King mm. um, in, you know, undergraduate and people just laughed at me and they were like mocking me. And I'm glad um, that I've come back because they were wrong. You know, like he's, he's a fascinating writer and um, he displays American fears and human fears so well. And so I think for me talking about the Stanley, which is a Colorado landmark, um, which I've been to as a child, um, which, you know, um, is such a cool location and then trying to tie it to the plot, you know, and showing that Carrie goes there because the journey is integral to her and her loves and her things. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just fun for me. And, and I guess fruitful, you know, that's really interesting. You know, I think uh, I hadn't really thought about that the way that like Carrie's life and interests all sort of get like intertwined with her mother's history and her journey. So both of their stories are really important to her uncovering the truth of what happened. Um, switching back to native Colorado, Colorado a little bit. Um, you saw, you talked about some places that are real and I was wondering about another one too. Um, there's a, a place called mutiny now. And I did notice that there's a place with like a similar name in Denver. Um, but that like another one that was sort of based off of uh, real things kind of. Oh yeah. And, and quickly to go back to the Stanley, a funny personal anecdote is I went there for research my, with my niece, who's like my little um, helper. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, she's so cute. Um, and, you know, she was 14 at the time. And as much as I'm cynical about anything paranormal, I, in the middle of the night, like supposedly it's, we were in the room that is in the book and supposedly there's like a white guy who stands in the corners and glares at you. <laughs> He'll scratch you if he doesn't like you. So we went in there we got him a spirit plate and we talked to him. And every time we talked to him, the light would waver. Oh yeah. So, and then in the middle of the night, like, I'm like, Maeve, could you turn on the light? Cause I have to be like, I was so scared. I couldn't turn the light on. As to Mutiny Now, I freaking love Mutiny Now. It's absolutely a Denver landmark. It's had many names over the years. I've almost forgotten them. I, when I was in grad school, I bought um, a signed copy of Langston Hughes, The Weary Blues there. Um, I busted out a credit card um, for that. And I still go there. I went there the other day. It is absolutely a Denver landmark. The guy, it's in my first novel too. The guy, Jack Jensen, is an artist and he used to own it and he sort of gave it over, but only to people who keep it like it was, which they do. And um, he's a total character. He does these really sarcastic kind of postmodern paintings. 
And at one point, someone had said like, hey, I want to pay half. And he's, they're so cheap for what they are. And he cut it, cut it in half. And he's like, you can have this half for $30. And it's on, it's in Mutiny now still. And it's great. <laughs> like it's got books and comic books, loads of comic books, a coffee shop in the back. You, there's tons of poetry readings. There's someone like eating pickles for two hours as a, what do you call performance piece? I mean, it's, it's freaking, it's great. So that's so cool. It does remind me about how like, you know, before the borders age, before the Amazon age, like bookstores used to be these like little radical centers for communities, you know, where cool, weird stuff would happen. And you get some of that, like there's, um, you know, some places like that in New York and, you know, it sounds like there's some others too, but um, yeah, like this, this book is very much about all these places that kind of are like unofficial community centers because like bookstores are really important and bars are really important. Like not even the white horse, but like a bunch of other bars that get mentioned and like, they're all just places where people can connect when you don't necessarily have someone like at home who you can maybe talk to or you know you have like a, a pretty fr a small friend circle and you want to talk to people in your community and I really love these kind of like makeshift family spots you know that become like your your networks your support networks absolutely Carrie I wanted to be um clear that Carrie has some healing to do but that Debbie's answer like her cousin who's like, just get married and have a baby. Like, you'll be happy. And my, my character's like, but are you happy? And, you know, those answers are not the right answers for her, even if she heals. And that Carrie is just an independent person. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's self-educated. I wanted, um, even though I have a doctorate, like I wanted to give self-education a real, um, you know, real respect here. Um, like, cause like a lot of people I come from, you know, some went to college, some didn't. Carrie knows about horror. She knows about heavy metal. She knows about old Denver. Um, and, you know, if you go on Broadway and, in Denver, it's still anyway, got these like great Denver landmarks, the Hornet, Muni now, um, the Brutal Poodle's kind of new, but it's there. And um, Carrie, you know, I think a better world for Carrie would be able being treating her cousin a little more like less a mom and, um, you know, having at least one or two friends and maybe a consistent relationship where they did not live with her because Carrie would probably cut them in their sleep. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like Carrie's home space is pretty, pretty sacred and she doesn't want random people traipsing through it. So, <laughs> wow. um, well, I love this book so much and I'm so, so thankful that you came to talk about it with us. Um, is there anything that you're working on now that you're able to talk about or that you have coming up? Yeah, I, um, I'm working on a novel called Room 904, and it's not going to, it's not announced yet, but it looks like Flat, Flatiron is going to acquire it. Mm. And essentially, it's about a woman who's kind of like, she's also kind of sarcastic, but she is like new Denver. She's a millennial, and she likes shiny things when Carrie's like, no, thank you. I like the gritty. And um, her primary relationship is her sort of helpmate, um, who's a, he's, he's gay, he lives with her. And they have a platonic, essentially, marriage. Um, and because I want to continue to give dignity to these non-traditional things, right? Mm -hmm. So, but in any case, her thing is she was finishing her doctorate in psychology and her sister and her mother, um, you know, they loved, they love everything paranormal. She doesn't. Her dad's a scientist. That's the way she sees things. And when her sister gets involved with this cult, 
she, the last night of her, when she's celebrating, um, when Olivia's celebrating her, her PhD, her sister calls and says, you know, you need to come to the Brown Palace and help me. And she's like, just come here. And she suicides. And the, then she's like, her sort of powers are turned on. And what happens is she has to abandon her academic career. Her um, best friend ends up with HIV, needs good insurance. And what does she know how to do? but be a paranormal investigator. Mm -hmm. So she does this, um, and her obsession is um, the Warrens, you know, from the Conjuring series, if you know it. And she um, is doing this, and then her, the Brown Palace calls, and it's like, you know, there's just been a series of murders, they happen every nine years, if you could help us, and we really need you to help us. And she finds this because her sister is now haunting the Brown Palace for some reason. Mm -hmm. And then um, when these people check into the Brown Palace, they show up in room 904, and they seem to suicide. And so her mother checks in and appears in 904. So she's like, I got to do this. So now, oh, my gosh, that sounds amazing. I'm so excited to read that. And I hope that, um, you know, you'll consider coming back to the show to talk about that one, too, because I've had a great time talking to you today. <laughs> you, too. I so appreciate that. And without question. <laughs> oh, thank you. All right, listeners. Well, this book, White Horse by Erica T. Worth, is available as of the airing of this episode. So you should absolutely get it at your favorite independent bookstore or library. We love those places. Uh, this has been Jen. Uh, and it is time to close this chapter. <laughs> <laughs>